Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to a special episode of Speaking of the Arts. Today, you will hear a rebroadcast of a live panel discussion that we recently hosted via Zoom. The discussion featured several different presenters representing smaller clubs, performing arts centers, and festivals, and centered around the topic of how to present music going forward. The panelists shared excellent ideas and insights into various scenarios they are exploring to make live music and events safe, with COVID-19 as a major consideration. I'd like to personally thank Kendra, Mark, Jillian, Tim, Shlomo, Tom, Ryan, Jonathan, and Bryce for being on the panel, and also to Marie LeClaire for helping in producing the event. I'd also like to thank everyone who registered to watch the event live. We had almost 300 registered attendees from all sides of the industry, and you guys submitted excellent questions during the Q&A, so thank you for that. Many people have since asked if they can watch a video recording of the discussion, and this can be found on the news section of our website, Epstein & Company, that's epsteinco.com, E-P-S-T-E-I-N-C-O.com, as well as on our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening today, everyone, and please take care. Thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to welcome you to our discussion uh, titled The Future of the Performing Arts. My name is Mike Epstein, and I'm the founder and director of the national booking agency Epstein & Company, as well as the podcast series Speaking of the Arts. We have a very diverse group of panelists today, and I'm so grateful to each of you for participating. Together, you guys represent clubs, performing arts centers, and major festivals that, when combined, attract hundreds of thousands, if not millions of patrons each year. So today, everybody is gonna hear from Kendra Whitlock Ingram, president and CEO of the Marcus Performing Arts Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mark Jacobson, senior programming manager at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ryan McMakin, artistic director of the Savannah Music Festival in Savannah, Georgia. Jillian Friedman Fox, Director of Contemporary and Saluna Programs at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra in Dallas, Texas. Tim Jackson, the Artistic Director of the Monterey Jazz Festival and Artistic Director and Co-Founder of Kwamba Jazz in Santa Cruz, California. Shlomo Lippitz, Vice President of National Programming for City Winery in New York, New York. Jonathan Winkle, Director of Jazz Ensembles at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Tom Warner, Director of Performing Arts at Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and Bryce Rosenblum, Founder and Producer of the New York City Winter Jazz Fest, Jazz Coalition, Co-Founder, and Boom Collective Owner. I would also like to thank all of our attendees for registering. At present, we have almost 300 registered attendees from all sides of the industry, including presenters, managers, agents, artists, and even music students from different schools. We actually had to increase our Zoom capacity to accommodate everyone. So thank you guys so much for being here today. I have no doubt we're gonna receive excellent questions from each of you at the end during our Q&A. So we're gonna do that via the chat feature. Just make sure you have your chat uh, selected to send to everybody, not just the panelists. That way everybody can see uh, what your questions are. And lastly, I would like to thank Marie LeClaire on my team for all of her support and assistance today. Thank you, Marie. As a reminder to everyone, if your microphone is not already muted, please be sure to mute it so as to be respectful to our speakers. There is so much uncertainty right now in the world and in our industry, but the general sentiment is that we are really all in this together. 
And over the past eight weeks, I've been encouraged by the conversations I've had with presenters and artists and agents and managers as everyone tries to figure out a new way forward. It will not be easy as we all know, but easy is not why we signed up to be in the arts in the first place. The arts are resilient and they've always been our go-to for a source of comfort and inspiration during times of crisis, especially. So before we go any further, I'd just like to offer a brief moment of silence for those who have lost their lives or are currently fighting COVID-19. Our thoughts and prayers are with you all. To kick off our conversation today, I'd actually like to start by reading my favorite definition of creativity, which goes as follows. Most people think creativity is about thinking outside the box, but it is actually about thinking inside a smaller one. And I can't think of a better way to frame our discussion, and we can probably all agree that the constraints we are each facing right now can make it feel as though the walls of our respective boxes are physically closing in on us. Nonetheless, I believe that through these constraints, we will ultimately devise new creative solutions and opportunities for the arts. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna turn things over to Kendra Whitlock Ingram. I'm gonna have her start us off and speak about her organization and some of the things they are exploring for future presenting. Kendra, take it away. Thanks, Mike. Um, uh, looking forward to also hearing uh, the other panelists and, and how they're dealing with this uh, current crisis. Very grateful to you for um, putting this panel discussion together. Just to give some background on uh, Marcus Center, we are a, a private uh, nonprofit organization that lives in a county-owned facility in Milwaukee, downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, our budget range is somewhere between 13 and 18 million, depending on the year, usually driven by the number of Broadway weeks we present. We are a Broadway presenter, uh, presenting about seven to 12 um, touring Broadway weeks a year. We are also the home of a number of major uh, arts institutions, uh, performing arts institutions in Milwaukee, including the Milwaukee Ballet, uh, First Stage Youth Theater, uh, Florentine Opera, until recently the Milwaukee Symphony, which is now moving into their own venue just a couple blocks down the street. Um, uh, also to give some context, I'm new in this role. Uh, my first day on the job as president and CEO was March 9. My first meeting uh, in my new role was with our Broadway partner to talk about canceling our Broadway week uh, the following week. Um, by the end of that week, I was making the call to shut down our venue through March. And um, on the Friday night of that week, I was attending a uh, opera performance uh, of Carmen with no audience um, as they uh, pre-recorded it for future broadcast on their website, uh, followed by a Saturday night performance of the Milwaukee Symphony, which also I sat in an empty hall listening to the orchestra as they live streamed their performance. That was our last performance in the Marcus Center. So that was uh, March 14. That was March 14. So of the 10 weeks or so that I've been on this job, nine of those weeks have been remote, um, working with the staff and uh, planning for, uh, you know, the immediate and long-term future. So. It's been quite a ride uh, <laughs> over these last few weeks, um, but even with all that said, I'm like 
really thrilled to be here. So just a couple of things I want to touch on um, uh, quickly, what we're working on right now essentially is a 15-month plan of operating, which takes us through um, partially through the first quarter of our, ne of our of two fiscal years from now, so fiscal 22. Our fiscal year ends or starts in July, so we'll be going into fiscal year 21 um, in July. And the next, uh, you know, straddling between uh, fiscal, between this year and next year, basically the summer, uh, will be very limited activity. We are planning to do some in-person events um, on the rooftop of our parking structure. We're planning a drive-in series um, of films and potentially live events. Um, gonna pilot that next month to see how that uh, shakes out. And then after that, we start looking at a four scenario plan of reopening. Um, one scenario being October, uh, a second, uh, being January, a third being March, you know, 2021, and then kind of a loose hybrid uh, where we would start in December, which would mean we would get our resident companies, um, would get their holiday shows off like um, uh, Nutcracker. Um, I think I sit on a number of calls daily on national task force of other CEOs of performing arts centers and um, the uh, Broadway Across America, which is our Broadway partner. And I would say that uh, it's looking less and less likely that a false start um, for businesses we typically operate uh, will happen. Um, in our case, there's not really an in-between situation for um, a reduced capacity reopen because the financials don't work. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions about that as people are looking to um, bring their venues back online or bring performances back online in smaller capacity. For us, you know, it's, it's hard to make a Broadway week work um, without our 60-70% minimums. Um, so those are the financials we're looking at. Uh, we also are running a reopening task force right now, which is focusing, it's mostly staff that are working with our resident partners, uh, local government and health officials and other venues in the area to imagine what the protocol would be for front of house and back of house, um, which includes essentially, which I'm sure you're all working on, you know, extreme sanitation, tracing and tracking, uh, temperature checks for staff and um, backstage, anybody who comes into the building that's back of house, um, and then potential tracing and tracking of audience members. So a uh, lot going on on that front. Uh, for the moment that we can open in a meaningful way, we'll be prepared for that. We're also looking at some high level medical grade sanitation that would, um, would help us to more efficiently clean the building in between performances. Um, other than that, I think Mike wanted me to mention or bring up the idea of um, audience confidence and how we're feeling about that. Uh, we are participating in a national survey through the Performing Arts Center Consortium, which uh, will be measuring the audience temperature, no pun intended, um, over the next seven months. So the surveys start uh, this month in May. They'll be done twice a month. Those surveys will be um, picked from our database, 2,000 random people at a time, uh, different folks at each time. 
taking their, their temperature on, on their confidence to come back to the venue and when. So then uh, there's been some question about doing this audience surveying, you know, in a period of time, how it might not reflect how things could, people could feel three months from now or two months ago. So this is a really great uh, program, um, a study that's being done because it gives us uh, more real-time information on how uh, where consumer confidence is uh, on a bi-weekly basis. And so I think I'm a little over time, so uh, that's all I have to share at this moment. Kendra, thank you so much. Um, Mark, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you now and have you talk about what it's like in Ann Arbor and what you guys are working on at the University of Michigan. Thanks, Mike. So University Musical Society of the University of Michigan um, is going into our 143rd season. We're closely affiliated with the University of Michigan, but we're actually our own 501c3 that's governed by a board of directors. So we're in a unique situation and usually we have the best of both worlds in terms of our relationship with uh, the University of Michigan. Uh, we're able to make our own artistic decisions um, and, and fiscal decisions. Um, I'll just start off by saying that art and culture gives meaning to life. And historically, artists have been compelled to respond to life during challenging times. Arguably, we need art and culture now more than ever. Um, I believe it's also the presenter's responsibility to the best of our ability to facilitate and make this artistic uh, commentary possible. And that facilitation can be achieved uh, via distribution of resources, whether that's financial or otherwise, uh, such as space to create or commissioning of new works. So uh, there's no question that uh, the pandemic that we're all facing um, is dictating that arts presenters of all sizes adapt and innovate in sometimes radical ways. Um, UMS is interesting in that because of the different size venues, uh, we're in anywhere from nine to 13 spaces uh, in Ann Arbor and throughout southeastern Michigan. Um, that, 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 and we're also a multidisciplinary presenter that I think we, we are a little bit of a hybrid of a lot of arts presenting organizations in terms of audience size and uh, again, uh, discipline and genre that we present. Um, we're also in a moment where artists in all disciplines are going to need to consider adapting to a new environment. So at UMS right now, currently, um, we're committed to continue to connect artists and audience in uncommon and engaging experiences, expanding and extending UMS's impact into the digital space. So sometimes in this experiment, um, an artist's online residency could culminate in an in-person or on-land experience and future presentation for in-person audiences. Um, one concept that we're, um, that, that, that we're in deep discussion and development of is, um, is an initiative or an experiment in this case where UMS could partner um, with partnering organizations uh, not only throughout the nation, but perhaps internationally, and select artists to work with us um, in, 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 a, in, a, in an initiative where UMS and our partnering organizations 
could provide resources for online development of content and creative uh, um, commissioning. Um, the other aspect that we're working with is, um, is of course, if we cannot present our season, which will be you know, dictated in part by the state of Michigan, uh, the CDC, and the University of Michigan's policies. Um, we're also in a lot of conversations about what a live pivot would mean. And this could be um, um, artists who are solo or duet artists, artists who are social, socially and physical distancing within their own creative circle, um, audiences of smaller sizes, um, but at the end of the day, I think that um, we have a responsibility again to to do something, an experiment. We can be, you know, anything that we can do can be forgiven. But what can't be forgiven is is not doing anything. Um, I also am convinced that there is a kind of magic, and I think we all agree, that lives in creating shared moments in time. Uh, and we plan to continue to create these moments for our audiences, and it will more than likely look and feel different than it used to look. Um, and I don't think anyone is fooling ourselves differently. Um, and deep down, I also feel that post-pandemic, our society will enter into a creative renaissance. It's the responsibility of presenters to enable that artistic resurgence as we really need it more than ever. Thank you, Mark. Julian, I'm gonna have you talk next about what, what's happening at the Dallas Symphony and what you guys are working on. Thanks. Uh, so uh, my name's Jillian and uh, as uh, Mike mentioned, uh, I oversee three programs here at the DSO. Um, that is the Saluna Festival, which is an annual three-week festival that explores the intersection between classical music and contemporary art. I oversee all of our special programs and our contemporary programs with orchestras uh, and also without orchestra. And that uh, mostly focuses on the summertime. And then I also run our Women in Classical Music Symposium. Uh, so each three of these initiatives have had very different types of pivots due to COVID. Um, for Saluna, the festival was supposed to run April 3 through 21. So that was canceled in terms of its festival format fairly early on. Um, but we've been really successful in pivoting that to a series structure, and we've been able to reschedule nine of those events. Um, we are waiting to announce those new dates until we feel more confident that our patrons will feel comfortable coming back. Um, but so those are looking at the fall. Um, for our specials concert, we're kind of looking at things on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, we are currently not having any concerts through May 31st. Um, and then concerts after that, each concert is a very unique experience, um, whether or not we can uh, provide a safe environment for both on stage and for our patrons. And for the Women in Classical Music Symposium, we actually just announced that last week that that will be this November, um, which gosh, that feels my months and years away uh, in this time period. And so um, as of right now, we are very optimistic and, and looking forward to that initiative um, and also looking at potential virtual opportunities so that um, if unfortunately people don't feel like they can travel at that time, that we'll have ways for people to connect and network and uh, interact with mentorship opportunities uh, at that time. Uh, we've also really invested during this period 
on our community. And so we've focused a lot on our music education initiatives during this period and using that as a way to continue to fulfill our mission. Uh, we have two benchmarks of that program, our Young Strings program, uh, which is a orchestra model. And then we have a Young Musicians program, which is based um, on the El Sistema model of providing instruments, lessons, um, and ensemble practice for uh, children from second through fifth grade. Uh, we've been able to move all of that to a virtual model and that's been really successful for us. Um, and I think that that, you know, in any normal situation that those are incredibly valuable, meaningful programs, but to be able to give children something to focus on and a just healthy distraction. And I'm sure the parents really appreciate that their kids are off doing something else with an adult online. Um, uh, is really meaningful. Uh, and we've furthered that program uh, by ensuring that any of our students in the program who did not have uh, tablets at home were given tablets. And we've been also doing a, um, a grocery program uh, since most of those families are in a more underprivileged situation or um, might have some food insecurities. Um, we've been doing food drives and delivering groceries regularly to those families. Um, the big drive, I think, for the DSO is just continually coming back to the question of how can we continue to meet our mission during this time. I think um, many orchestras are in a unique situation in the performing arts in that um, orchestras on a whole rely on usually ticket sales for about a third of their revenue, um, which is very different from a performing arts model or a festival model. And uh, so we can look at opportunities where maybe uh, we are only having 100 or 200 patrons in the hall. Um, when it is safe to do so. Uh, we're looking at concert models where there is no more intermission, uh, you know, very strong social distancing in the hall. What does that look like on stage for our musicians? So, you know, every day we're having many meetings and conversations with all of our constituents to see what is the safest way to be able to get back on stage and meet our mission uh, as soon as possible. Um, but as you all know, it changes daily. So uh, it's been a it's been a really um, a, a, a trying time for everyone, but it's also been an opportunity to be really creative. Um, and that can be very exciting to see how can we continue to make music and reach um, our patrons in a way that is meaningful during this time. Thanks so much, Jillian. Tim, I'm gonna have you talk about the festival now and in Columba and how everything's going on your end. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, well, in regards to the Monterey Jazz Festival, it's a kind of an emotional day for me because today's the day that we have postponed our festival uh, for next year. So there will be, for the first time in 63 years, there will be no Monterey Jazz Festival. So uh, it's kind of a tough blow. I've been with the organization for 30 years, so um, I'm very invested in 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 what in what we do. So, uh, but we essentially had no choice, as as all of you know. The the uh, landscape out there is just too um, too difficult to uh, to contend with right now, and it's just uh, became increasingly evident that the festival was uh, was not to be for this year. So. Uh, we will schedule it for next year, September 24 to 26. I'm going to try and invite back uh, as many of the artists that I can from this year. I was very happy with the, with the program for this year, and I'd like nothing more than to uh, 
which is why I, th I think of this as a postponement because I'm hoping that people will hear the same festival that they would hear this year, next year, uh, because I think it's a, it's, it's a lineup that is really worth hearing. So for us at Monterey, once we get through the, um, the shock of, of, uh, of this postponement, you know, we have to move on to new things. Um, we had just finished last month our Next Generation Jazz Festival, which is our, our national student uh, jazz student festival. And uh, while we couldn't do that live, we were able to do that online in a virtual environment. We learned a lot of lessons. So we're moving forward with uh, various online programs uh, that we are developing now. Uh, I'm sure that we will do something online to commemorate the festival during festival weekend, which would have been this year, September 25 to 27. I'm actually starting to look at, um, you know, we can, we have 63 years of, uh, of archives of some fantastic music that we can present. Uh, so I think we can put a, a compelling weekend of, of music together. So um, uh, it's important for us, uh, somebody made, I think Mark made the comment earlier about, uh, you know, we need to be out there and present and doing something even if we can't present artists on stage. And uh, I know many of us are doing some great initiatives out there. I know Bryce has got a, a great new initiative I'm sure he'll be talking about. Um, so those are the things that we need to do to remain creative and remain relevant. And that's, that's what the Monterey Jazz Festival intends to do. In regards to Coomba Jazz, uh, Coomba Jazz Center in Santa Cruz, uh, opposite of Monterey, we're a venue that operates year-round. It's a 200-seat venue uh, in a small coastal town here in Central California, about 60,000 uh, population. Uh, we had our last show with Melissa Aldana on March 10th. We've been closed uh, ever since. Uh, I don't know when we will be able to reopen. Uh, we, we sort of look at this as a three-phase plan for Coomba. Right now we're in phase one, which is we're completely closed down and we're just using our website to stay engaged with our audience and patrons, uh, showing uh, archived uh, videos and uh, you know Spotify playlists that the staff come up with, uh, various things like that to keep our audience engaged. Our phase two, once the shelter in place lifts here in California, which I'm hoping is at, uh, at the beginning of June, um, while we won't be able to present any live music, I'm hoping to be able to start streaming some small groups from the Coomba stage um, with, uh, again, with no audience, um, social distancing on stage, and just a couple of technical people in the room. So that will at least get the venue uh, open and operating. I mean, we just bought a brand new Steinway piano, so I want, I'm anxious to show it off. Um, so that will be our phase two. Um, and as I say, get, uh, get us our presence back in the community in a little deeper way. Phase three would be in when we can actually reopen with an audience. Um, I'm sure we all have our formulas for social distancing. Our 200 seat venue will probably drop down to about uh, somewhere in the low 50s um, and we will find a model that works probably doing two shows in an evening maybe at six and eight o'clock selling uh, the tickets in little pods of twos and fours uh, selling all the tickets in advance uh, for the um, bar and uh, and cafe selling the food and drinks in advance 
and find some ways, uh, have certain times when people enter the room, have, have actual reservation times. So different parties will arrive at different times and trying to um, uh, maintain the sanitation uh, and uh, cleanliness standards that, that we will need to have. So um, we're just looking at it as a, as a step-by-step -step process. And I can't wait to get some music back on the stage because uh, it's driving me crazy. I'm getting tired of hearing music coming through uh, computer speakers. <laughs> I want to hear it live. Thanks so much, Tim. Shlomo, can you talk a little bit about how you guys are faring at City Winery and, and the different locations you guys are running? Sure. So a little Snapchat chat to um, March 12 or 13 when we closed. We were two weeks away from completing our new facility in New York at Pier 57. We were a week away from opening our two acre property in Hudson Valley. We were three days away from our large sold out Carnegie Hall show with Carly Simon and friends. So it all came down crashing pretty fast. You know, we were lucky enough to have a great team in place to really make some quick, um, quick moves really. Um, in, a, in a really short time. So, uh, you know, we reduced our staff across the country uh, by about 90%, pretty much within the first week, kind of foreseeing what's going to go on. That's about 1,100 employees, most of them furloughed. And um, we've been, you know, after the first few weeks, which we all know, things just came kind of hitting us back to back and really uh, uneven understanding from both the artists, the agents, managers, the whole kind of ecosystem about what's really in front of us. Uh, I think we, we, we took advantage of, of having a good team and, and making these steps pretty quick. Um, you know, our main focus has been really divided into a few, few sectors. One, really dealing with um, the artists and agents and managers and trying to figure out a smart way to get everyone on the same page, to really break down all the old uh, ways of how we conduct business and how we view things and really trying to establish a and, and preach a real partnership between everyone, which is kind of the key for us to come back. So just an example, we're sending out offers now for September and onward with a minimum and maximum amount of estimated seats. I mean, I think we all know, we know nothing, but we do know that when we do open, whenever that is, and you know, a whole new level of challenges that we're, we're in seven different cities. We have 13 rooms in seven different cities and seven, seven different states. And as we all know, we have a room in, uh, in Tennessee and in, 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 in Georgia. And obviously we're not opening up our doors this week. So, you know, there's a whole level of, as a brand, what do we do to kind of uh, practice smart and um, responsible actions from our side? So these offers are basically, we know for sure there's gonna be a minimum 50 and hopefully we maximize and, and, and develop our, as, as each state moves on and we could figure out what we could do up to 150. So really trying to wrap agents are looking to us, to the clubs, to kind of what we can offer, what we could do as operators. You know, I've 
I know more stuff about sanitations and and opening protocols than ever before, which is fine. It's a whole new layer of the business. But uh, like Kendra said and Tim mentioned, I mean, we're looking at everything from ordering online to, you know, shorter shows. And how do we take a show that was sold out of 300 tickets in September and not lose that show and actually create four shows, two shows a night to be able to make up the difference? Um, so in addition to all of that, I mean, we're lucky enough that City Winery is really more than just four walls and a City Winery sign on the back of the stage. We're a brand, we have an amazing uh, following and we've built a really strong community that have been very, very supportive of us, which also I think is encouraging uh, for the short term when we start putting back shows. You know, we all know that even if legally we're allowed to put on shows, the real battle starts is, you know, which is especially with City Winery with a little older demo, how do we overcome the psychological fear of fans coming out and seeing shows? Uh, on the same token, we're pitching, hey, let's do a show in front of 50 people because you're only able to emulate a certain level of energy on stage, even if it's one of 50 people, and how do we make up that money, potential uh, revenue loss by doing a $5 stream so people could both artists could make more money, but also be able to still stay connected with, with, uh, with their fans. And then as far as the streaming and digital portion of things, you know, we kind of waited on the on the sideline to try to figure out how we do it right. And this past Sunday we were, we put together a mother's day multi-artist stream. We sold over 4,800 tickets, which is pretty amazing. And I think, the way we see in the next couple of months is really what are we doing to uh, keep a certain level of, st of standards, uh, connecting with our artists, and really focusing on only stuff that generates uh, income. Uh, either the Mother's Day show was a charity event, and then we're doing these kind of streams uh, internally with, with our own system to really, again, ge generate some money for the artist and, and, and for us when the full few employees that are left. You know, one of the things that I think are important, and I talked briefly with you about this, Mike, is it's extremely important. We see that already, you know, if it's between Neva, which is our, you know, independent uh, venue organization that really got together very quick and has done a, an amazing job on both the lobby side and just informing clubs and independent venues to all the way to local New York organizations that are helping for this to open up and for the, for this to be uh successful opening up the and, and bringing live music back to everyone it's important for venue like ours where we have the human resources and and someone like bryce or some some of the folks on this panel that have the resources to really share these resources with everyone else who may you know maybe a small art presenter who the only person that they have to rely on is a board that doesn't really is not really connected with what's going on and yes i could book a show at city winery in september but if the four or five venues that are in dc or around us leading up to new york or leading from new york onward they're not in the same level of standard of uh anywhere from uh, uh safety for the artist you know which is a big thing that not really many people are talking about to safety of of the audience then this whole thing is going to collapse. So 
you know, I've really, and City Winery has really offered our services and, and our knowledge to anyone who really wants to learn more that may not have the same resources or may not have the same connections. Uh, there may not be in a big city and they don't have kind of who to land, lend an ear to. Um, so really creating a certain standard. And I think that's ultimately also gonna be, you know, some of the conversation that go on, but as far as the local municipalities, having them really create a certain standard that clubs and, 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 and venues could abide by and, and make this a smart and, a smart and slow process of reopening. Uh, because the last thing I think we all want is a you know, one-two punch, which is some careless openings, artists that get sick and then transfer that, each venue that they pass around to and all the way to fans are coming seeing shows and just don't get that same level of confidence that, th that they're safe. So well, that's kind of so short. Yeah, appreciate it. Jonathan, I'm going to throw it to you now, and I think you're in a pretty unique position with the experience you have both as a presenter and now on faculty with students straddling both worlds. So I'd love to hear from you about what it's like where you are. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, the last 20 plus years I've spent uh, running orchestras and presenting organizations. And uh, now I'm uh, running ensemble programs on the jazz side at um, the university. And so there are a lot of parallels, some key differences, of course. But uh, at present, uh, the university is examining four options. The best case would be mostly in-person instruction with some online instruction in the fall. Second would be mostly online, but some in-person. Third option would be uh, continuing what happened for the back half of this semester, which was online instruction across the university. And then the fourth least desirable option, of course, is uh, online instruction for the entire academic year. A lot of concerns, you know, student retention, student recruitment, those have revenue uh, implications. There's, there are educational implications, of course, uh, for what we want to be able to deliver to students. Uh, you know, there's even a, a presenting component on a small scale. Uh, you know, we, we often bring in guest artists to work with the students, uh, to perform with them, to teach. And, uh, you know, so I had a whole list of uh, people that I've been in discussions with to bring in for uh, next season, uh, one of whom is Mike's former percussion teacher. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it's really uh, interesting to see what, what is happening on the positive side, though, too. I would say that in some respects, there is deeper engagement with um, the students right now because of what's happened uh, on an individual basis. Whereas I might be seeing, you know, you know, 20, 30 students twice a week uh, as a group, you know, I'm probably uh, connecting more with them one-on-one -on -one than I would have under normal circumstances. And I think that's something that's going to be increasingly important. Uh, I'm also reaching out to, to uh, my own students in terms of getting their feedback about what their concerns are, uh, much like an audience survey uh, would, would take place. But uh, how do they see their own educational development uh, continuing under these circumstances? Uh, on a personal level, my wife's a freelance violinist in Milwaukee and Chicago, uh, is the orchestra manager for the ballet orchestra here in Milwaukee, and is the main orchestra contractors. So these topics are uh, daily fodder for 
uh, for us uh, at home. But uh, you know, these are all major concerns. Of course, I'm regularly in contact with a lot of colleagues and friends that are uh, either on the agency side or on the presenting side or the orchestra management side of things. And uh, I, th I do think that, um, Mark, to your point about you know, creativity being a responsibility for all of us, I think that is something that is definitely going to uh, take root more and more as we try to find our way through all these changing circumstances and dynamics. And of course, Wisconsin right now, if you haven't checked the news, is under some unusual uh, dynamics on a legislative and court level. So that's affecting uh, some things that Kendra's dealing with and I'm dealing with as well. Uh, so it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to, to not suffer some, uh, some low points along the way with what we're all experiencing, but I think there's also room uh, for us to to hope and dream and uh, and think about the positive things that that might come out of this that we wouldn't have otherwise considered uh, because of of old patterns and old ways of doing things. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Uh, Tom, I'm going to have you go next, and I think like actually many panelists here, you're in a unique position for your own reasons. The summer festival that you do and year-round programming, so. I'd, Love to hear from you about what you guys are thinking right now. Uh, yeah, thanks, Mike, and and thanks to all you other panelists because I'm getting as much from you as as anything. It's nice to hear what everyone else is going through. Um, we um, we're actually part. It's a large Longwood Gardens is a large botanic garden. It's um, like a thousand acres uh, in southeastern Pennsylvania, and of course, it's been around for a hundred years or something. And its core. Uh, mission is to be a botanic garden, but within that mission is to um, showcase and highlight the performing arts in these beautiful settings. So um, we plan on reopening when we can reopen strictly as a garden first, um, just to get people because uh, many of you have probably seen some of the surveys, you know, botanic gardens and zoos and that kind of thing are one of the first places people might feel comfortable going to. Um, so we're gonna do that first, but because presenting um, beautiful music in a beautiful setting is also a very core part of our mission, we hope to get, of course, our performances back up as soon as possible. Um, that being said, we have already canceled our entire summer series. Uh, we have a 1500 seat outdoor amphitheater where we do most of our performances in the summertime, but we also have things like, um, and in June we have a annual weekend long wine and jazz festival um, that of course had to be canceled. And um, thankfully all of the performers have already said they're good for the rescheduled date in summer of 2021. Um, and I'm finding that with some of, the, some of the other members as well, some of the other artists. Um, so that takes us into the fall and um, because our summer performances would have gone through September. Uh, that takes us into the fall where we have currently a four phase plan on paper that we're kind of playing around with and it's pretty darn fluid at this point, but um, it's everything from um, beginning with no performances at all to doing what we can on a, on a much more limited basis based on state restrictions and state mandates and of course the CDC and Longwood Gardens, um, 
And then um, the third or fourth phase is probably when we would get back into performances themselves. And even then, most likely in the third phase, and that could be three months from now, it could be six months from now. Um, we've got everything like I think a lot of you have already mentioned, everything from doing uh, very limited capacity. Our two indoor spaces are kind of small. They're about 375 and 265 that we do where we do indoor performances. So it's a lot of jazz, a lot of folk, a lot of chamber music, a lot of music from around the world. Um, we are exploring now the idea of if we have to do a limited capacity audiences of also offering the live stream option um, to go along with that, perhaps charging money, perhaps not. And but you know, we'd love to be able uh, to give the opportunity for the artist to make as much as possible knowing what we might or might not be able to pay them if our capacity is so limited. Um, but you know, perhaps it would be a slightly smaller fee, but we'd get some people in the door, so to speak, that way. We're also fortunate to have <clears throat> really huge lobby spaces. And when I say lobby, um, we're in the middle of a huge four acre greenhouse. So the lobby is exotic plants and flowers and all kinds of things all over the place. So while people wouldn't necessarily be in the room um, with the performance, we um, are thinking about maybe having chairs and things with large big screens um, for people to spread out um, in the within the conservatory also, which one gets people out of the house, sort of gets them to live music. It's, it's, it's a little iffy because of the way it would be arranged, but we are looking at that possibility. And then also looking at the two shows a night. Uh, somebody mentioned that. Um, you know, we've traditionally worked on the PAC model where it's one show, it's a little longer, it's got an intermission, but um, so I might need to call some of you jazz club owners to see how we do two shows in one night because <laughs> we're not as used to that. Um, and then of course, a lot of the other things that go along with this, contactless entry, um, we nearly are doing that in our gardens and so forth anyway, but we're figuring out how to do that. Um, frankly, not sure if we'd be able to sell merchandise or concessions at the very beginning. I'm sure we'd get back to it as soon as we could, but um, I think we sort of have to plan for that uh, possibility. Um, we typically hand out programs at every, at every concert. I don't think we would do that at all. Um, you know, we would just make sure anybody who does have a ticket um, can get as much information prior to that online that they might need. Um, so none of that. Um, we're even looking at the possibility of marketing things differently. Who knows what it's going to be like in October or December or February, but instead of rolling out the entire season all at once, and we haven't announced our indoor season yet, partially because of what's been going on, um, we may roll it out more gradually couple months at a time and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it could make things a little easier if we were to some, for some reason, have to cancel things down the road, at least for refunds or, or ticket exchanges and things like that. Um, but then that makes it hard to plan with the artists as well. And we want to be as fair to them as possible because, um, you know, yes, we're doing this for our audiences, but we're doing it just as much for the for the artists because they are suffering just as much as anybody in, in many cases more so. So we want to make sure they're getting those opportunities. Um, that's about where we are at Longwood Gardens, Mike. Thank you, Tom. Ryan, I'm going to hand it over to you now. How's everything going in Savannah? Uh, it's still going in Savannah. Um, we uh, 
you know, similarly to City Winery, we had a lot going right before the hammer swung down. Uh, we were 10 days out from our 2020 uh, festival season. Uh, thankful to have a mayor who was very decisive uh, and some good local public health officials who, who recommended um, that um, our audience were definitely at risk um, in all of this. So I would have hated to be a month, uh, uh, sorry, a week in um, to the process of the festival and had to shut down. But uh, as you all know, have gone through this, there's tons of undoing involved in all of that and then forward looking at the same time. So it's just the constant for those first four weeks. Um, our festival, um, well, our organization runs an annual festival, off-season concerts, which I think we're going to be doing a lot more of over the coming year, probably, just to adjust, and four different music education programs. Uh, it's staged in venues throughout Savannah's Historic District, which is uh, sizes of 175 seats up to 2,500 seats. Um, and many of them aren't primarily performance spaces, so we're building up. Our, our production team is building out those spaces for that 17-day period. So we face a lot of challenges with one-off um, concerts. Um, but in general terms, if you don't know the organization, we present artists kind of in American and international roots music and also jazz and classical music. Um, we, uh, you know, after that cancellation, uh, the impacts to artists were very clear uh, to our other community partners and our staff and our contractors. Uh, we created a 100-day plan that focused on retaining as much cash as possible because uh, we had come almost hit our ticket goal for the, for the year, um, cutting all non-essential expenses completely, and uh, yeah, unfortunately implementing salary reductions and uh, staff reductions too. Um, so that's where we are just in the short term, but we also have sort of a three-scenario plan. We immediately rescheduled five large-scale theater concerts at, the, at that time uh, for the fall starting in September not looking as good now, but we really, um, you know, we're, we're still scheduled to present those five concerts. Um, of course, we're going with the advice of our public health officials and our local government officials on that one, uh, and really thinking through everything we need to do on those fronts. Um, so within the first uh, two weeks also, we, we were, since we we're coming right up on the festival, we produced an online concert series, or just threw the idea out there to all the artists who were supposed to come to Savannah, and we, got, we had 35 different performers do living room and home studio performances. And we, did, we uh, had sort of a regular promotion daily and, and direct links to their Venmo and PayPal accounts that generated quite a bit of money for uh, certain artists and a lot of interest still uh, in those folks. Um, so the digital thing, um, you know, our, our education programs have transitioned to digital. That was an immediate um, initiative of the team. And much of that through workshops and instruction is actually going really well. Uh, family members are integrated into some of the processes, specifically with the lessons. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it can sustain for a little bit, but the bulk of our work, which is presenting live performances, just really isn't the same on the screen. So uh, we're eager to get back to, you know, putting artists on stage. Um, a central piece of our festival, being in the historic district of, of Savannah, is intimacy, which is going to be a serious challenge um, in the next 12 to 18, how many, however many months, we, we don't know. Uh, our average age of our springtime festival is close to the at-risk um, uh, kind of age, and 40% of our audiences come from out of town. Um, so these are all factors we're kind of weighing 
in our potential capacity and where we should be presenting uh, in the coming season. So on top of those uh, fall concerts with next year's season, we're certainly gonna be kind of compacting it to, we're looking at 11 days, um, but we're looking at every uh, adjustment and venue um, setting that we, put, that we can uh, kind of uh, go to. So I think in, in some of those ideas would be to, to go to a, a, a room that's three times the space and, and cut the capacity in half. Um, in other cases, we're looking at the two set option and trying to talk with artists to, um, to, to, to do two sets in one, you know, one matinee, one evening performances or performance. Uh, you know, it's really started a process of standard evaluation of each existing venue that we use, but every possible setting that we can look to within this historic district of, of Savannah. Um, so that's, that's essentially it. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're trying to stay nimble. We have uh, our scenario A is that everything goes well and we're able to present everything that's currently planned. Scenario B doesn't involve anything in the fall and looks at our springtime festival. Uh, scenario C is likely uh, off-season concerts and a fall festival for Savannah Music Festival, but um, we're trying to roll with it and stay as lean as we possibly can. Thanks so much, Ryan. Bryce, I'm going to have you close it out and talk about all the things that you're doing right now. And just be sure you unmute, Bryce. Great. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks, everyone. It's It's really super informative and inspiring to hear how everyone is continuing to engage with their audiences. Um, I think that's, that's one of our primary roles here. We built this community uh, in each of our own hometowns and um, it's just important to, to foster that and nurture that. Our audiences certainly need that. Um, my story is, uh, is a little bit varied. Um, uh, I run the Winter Jazz Fest, which happens in January. Uh, I also am a promoter throughout the year, promoting concerts in different venues around New York City and Brooklyn. Uh, so immediately, of course, like all of us in, in March, uh, it was clear that those had to be put on hold, whether canceled or postponed. Um, and that, that happened, of course, some of the events we postponed to the fall, of course, now we're, we're examining again and we'll likely have to uh, push those further, further back. Um, I want to just um, um, uh, follow up on, on you know, the, the, um, the support network idea that uh, Shloma mentioned. You know, we're, we're all in this together. We're all experiencing, you know, very similar, um, uh, similar effects of, of, of this epidemic. Uh, but of course, it, it is also very localized. It, it's likely, you know, that there are certain areas, certain regions will open up sooner than others. Um, so we can learn from each other. I know in colleagues in Europe, there, some of the cities are, are opening up and starting to let people into the venues and doing streaming. So there's certain, um, certain uh, uh, policies or, or guidelines that we can, we can learn from. There's also, it's just been circulating this week. I, I hope everyone has seen it. If they haven't, I'm happy to share the link. There's um, uh, Event Safety Alliance Reopening Guide uh, that has is, is been very, uh, valuable, a lot of valuable information in there. Um, you know, it's important for us to, to plan and think about these and, you know, talk about all these issues. Yet, you know, there is the, that just unknown. We don't really know what it's going to be like. We don't really know the dates, you know, when it's, when it's going to 
open up uh, fully um, nationwide. And that brings challenges and, and potential risk factors, uh, you know, especially for our industry, which relies on artists who are touring. Um, you know, in New York, yes, we're, we are we're fortunate that there's so much talent here and we can, you know, and, and there's talent, of course, everywhere. Um, but, you know, maybe this encourages us to, to think more, you know, look in our backyards. Um, but, uh, you know, the touring factor is definitely a big challenge. You know, the other risk factors, of course, um, health and sanitary issues, crowd control, air circulation, staff sa safety, testing, testing and monitoring, all these things which are touched upon in the Event Safety Alliance reopening guide, but all these things, of course, need to then be uh, tailored to our own individual situations and circumstances. Um, specifically, what I'm thinking right now, as I look towards uh, Winter Jazz Fest, of course, fortunately, it happened in January, you know, so now we're aiming towards next January, which, you know, a few weeks ago, or months ago, even a few weeks ago, seemed that would have been still a safe time to start planning. But of course, the further along we get, we're realizing we're going to have to make contingency plans and already realizing that capacities, of course, are going to have to be reduced. Uh, the venues that I depend on, some of them may not even be open, um, even when we get to phase three and four. They may not have survived. Um, you know, we're, we're waiting on relief. Uh, as Shlomo mentioned, uh, there's NEVA, National Independent Venues Association, which I'm also a part of. Um, hopefully the lobbying, the national lobbying will help and we'll get funding back into our pockets. Um, but that's uncertain. Uh, locally in New York, we're also um, trying to unify venues and try to do some, some local uh, lobbying uh, for funding and other support. Uh, and, and all of that organizing, all of this, these conversations is absolutely vital. Um, for Winter Jazz Fest this coming January 2021, we're likely going to, or we're exploring what it would look like to have um, a physical model where with reduced capacities and whatever venues we can use and augment it with a virtual experience. So it can be virtual from those specific venues, you know, broadcasting to our audience. Um, but we could also include venues in other cities. Um, I'm in discussions with, you know, presenters in, in Paris and Amsterdam, Berlin, uh, LA, Chicago. So we could feature uh, artists on those different stages, you know, under the banner of Winter Jazz Fest, um, which, you know, lends itself to a tremendous opportunity to grow the audience. The one thing that I'm very confident is uh, in January, when we depend on such a large number of audience, uh, mainly from the APAP conference and you know the, the, the industry focus that happens in New York uh, uh, during APAP is likely going to be diminished completely. Um, I, I would be very surprised uh, you know, we haven't heard officially, of course, but I'd be very surprised if APAP actually happens um, in any, you know, sort of uh, uh, level that it has in the past. So we won't have the international travelers. We won't have 25% of our Winter Jazz Fest audience are, are from, uh, from out of town. Um, we likely won't have that. And then, of course, as has been mentioned by many of us, um, just the, the audience uh, fear and behavior of, 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 of attending if physical is actually even allowed. So, so that'll be limited. 
So the whole financial structure uh, for our festival is going to have to pivot. Um, I do think there is potential in um, charging for virtual, as long as it's accessible. Um, it, that may mean $5, may mean $10. Some of the venues currently that, that I, I follow, Jazz Gallery has a, a $20 admission, it's $10 if you're a member, but they have a very avid following and they've been able to get regularly, you know, for their relative to their size, uh, 75 to 200 people uh, attend those. There's other people, uh, Brandy Younger and Desron Douglas, every Friday morning, uh, they do a brunch duo from their apartment. Um, they're getting, uh, it, it's free, and then they're encouraging donation, uh, and they're getting around 200 people each time. And, and I've, I've spoken to Brandy, and she's doing okay, actually, at that amount. Um, you know, the key is, here is figuring out ways to support our ecosystem, support the artists, um, I think as much as we can do, like I said before, engaging with our audiences and figuring out a way to get artists paid, um, that is key. I think the next step um, is thinking about the other levels of the ecosystem. So how do we ensure that the agents and the managers, um, you know, the crew, the photographers, the journalists, to, to bring them back, uh, in, you know, uh, to, to re-see that, that part of the ecosystem. Um, so, you know, a lot of things, I mean, fortunately, I'm, I don't have a venue, so I don't have the same kind of stress and strain and, and you know, the staffing responsibilities that everyone else here does. Um, but I'm trying to do my part with, um, with my resources and thinking about, you know, how to continue to engage the audience and keep artists compensated. With that in mind, you know, when this all happened and I was essentially you know, no longer a promoter. I was, I was, uh, you know, overseeing the uh, homeschooling and cooking all the meals, which the silver lining there is, is invaluable, of course, uh, the amount of family bonding. Um, but I, I started to look closer internally um, into my uh, professional community. What can I do to help? And uh, after speaking with some colleagues, specifically Danny Melnick uh, and Gail Boyd, we developed this program. Uh, this initiative called Jazz Coalition uh, with the intent to unify the jazz community globally. So reach out to all stakeholders. We did this for about a two week period uh, emails. So agents, managers, presenters, labels, um, musicians as well, and other supporters that we knew. And uh, in a matter of just a couple of weeks, we uh, engaged with 200, uh, initial inaugural members who donated at least $100. Um, and we raised $50,000 initially, and we're giving out commission grants to jazz musicians worldwide. Uh, we're in the current, we're in the middle of uh, our jury process to select who those 50 are. Uh, we have 17 jurors right now. Um, results should be announced on Monday. And in the meantime, we're continuing to raise more money. We're actually up to eight, over 80,000 right now. Um, and more is rolling in every day. Uh, we're trying to partner with people that are doing streaming for jazz musicians right now, asking, you know, can you donate 5% towards Jazz Coalition? Another way to get the word out about what we're doing and another way to bring in more resources and funding so we can impact musicians. And the goal here, of course, is we're gonna create a canon of new work that represents the resilience, um, our, our collective resilience and moves us all forward together. 
Rice, thanks so much. Um, if you want to share that link, uh, I'm sure people would want to check that out. So I want to thank all of uh, our panelists today for the insightful things you guys have said. Um, as I'm sitting here listening, there's so many different um, points that have been mentioned. You've got a, a handful of questions that have already come through. So for the next 15 minutes or so, um, I'd like to just open this up to all the attendees. Go ahead and post questions in, in the uh, chat there. And I'm gonna do my best to monitor it and have uh, our panelists answer the questions. There was already a few questions submitted during, so I'm gonna just cycle back here and pick some of these out. Um, Aaron Zimmerman wrote, do you think people will pay to see virtual shows? I'm worried about Zoom fatigue. And panelists, why don't you guys go ahead and just unmute yourselves. Uh, this can be kind of open-ended as far as who wants to, wants to go ahead and answer. So again, the question was, do you think people will pay to see virtual shows? I'm worried about Zoom fatigue. Does anybody want to talk about that? I, mean, I, I, I could try and answer. Um, like I said, we were pretty late in the game, not because we're, we were slow, but just more assessing the environment and what's out there. Um, we are approaching and have been approaching the past couple of weeks streaming the way we would um, any other show that we would book. Um, for example, I would not book a show that's eight and a half hours, for example. I would not book a show that uh, the artist is performing behind a sheet and you could barely see him or hear him, right? Or her. I would um, want to put on a show that will, I'll be able to charge money and cover my costs and pay something for the artist. So I think our approach so far has been uh, unique programming, keeping it in a really contained amount of time that is respectful for the person who's at home even when i'm home 24 7 i do not want to look at the screen for six hours straight and again um i think a couple of folks here talked about you know it seems like the first couple of weeks the donation model worked and then uh for i've been following closely donation have really been kind of tapering down so if we're producing a product that we feel that is presentable i think people should pay I think that's just, and, and people have been very thankful and appreciative of, of it. And it's, uh, I think as a venue talked about before where we have a certain brand identity and most of our email lists, we have over 750,000 people across seven markets. Um, they may not be on a blog that tells them what streams are out there. They may not be following social media. So the fact that uh, as a venue that has a following and uh, there are certain a brand trust we're providing a stream for them uh, I think is going to be very effective and uh, worthwhile the time and, and, and the effort as far as last thing that we're approaching uh, again the even though most of us have internet and cell and so and cell phones that present a 5g network most of us don't and what we've been approaching live stream again it's just about sharing what we're doing is a pre-recorded set to ensure a really high quality of sound uh, that set is unique you'll not find it they didn't do that same set somewhere else you're not going to find their social media you're not they're talking and addressing the audience as if it's live right now and then adding a live element that doesn't have anything to do with uh, music on zoom so 
again, an example, we're looking to do a stream. We're keeping the set for about 60 minutes long. And then we're doing a pre-show and post-show higher VIP ticket price for those who want to have some kind of hang time with artists as a Zoom. So we do at City Winery Artist Wine. We do a special label wine. And part of the one of the VIP tickets is you raise a toast with the artist. You buy a ticket, we send you a bottle of wine with the artist label on it, and you get to have some type of shared experience before. And then a post-show Zoom where we're doing what some apps are doing there, but we're using our own resources where you have five minutes with the artist, one-on-one -on, -one on Zoom, we record it, we then send the fan that little snippet of what otherwise be a really weird you know, selfie and we could charge more money. So that's kind of how we've been viewing streams. I feel like the, I understand the need the first couple of weeks to get the messaging out there, but to be honest, uh, some of these streams are just don't do justice to the artist, to their music, to the craft, and, and, and to people's time. Can I cut in real quick? Um, because I'm gonna have to get off the line at 4.15 and I see uh, slew of um, comments in here that have my name on them. <laughs> so I, I just want to quickly answer some of these questions that people are asking um, that were directed specifically to me. One on the survey results. So this survey um, that's being done right now is by a consulting company called AMS. They're our main consultant for the Performing Arts Center Consortium, which is a consortium of about 50 uh, major performing arts centers around the country, pretty much one in each of the states, two in some cases. Um, so th those are the initial participants. I know we are talking right now about how we can share this information brought more broadly. I already I serve on the board of APAP, actually, and um, this is something we're thinking about uh, maybe sharing with them um, and also uh, giving resources to uh, smaller organizations who may not have the, the money to spend right now on, on this kind of data collection to do something kind of like a, a scotch tape version uh, in their own organization. The, the trick is that it has to be done on a regular basis between now and a potential opening time because the consumer confidence continues to evolve over a time period. So if you are looking to do this yourself, which is totally possible, um, I would recommend mixing up your database. So, you know, selecting a, a, a subset of your database for each survey so that you're, you're going through different people and doing the surveys with the same questions at a, a equally spaced intervals, whether it be two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever. So that's to answer that question. Their question was on um, the, uh, are we using CDC guidelines um, on the reopening strategies? And I will say, I saw a post on here about the Event Alliance um, uh, resource, which I know many of us have used. Um, again, the PACC group has a subset um, working on it with a reopening task force. And those folks are actually talking to uh, health officials as high up as the CDC, and then more on a local level with, uh, today was mentioned, the Cleveland Clinic, um, which gave me the thought with our team is once we put our reopening plan together, we're planning to share it with, um, one of our local health officials here who's been really representing the state of Wisconsin, um, at least in Milwaukee County, um, and also with our colleagues in Appleton and uh, Madison who have uh, uh, medical consultants uh, viewing their uh, plan. So uh, again, from a small from a small town version or from your, your hometown version, you can 
put your get plan together and then you know find out like in our case we have a contact with um, one of the major uh, medical uh, experts who's on our board so you find it through a board contact and then just share it with them because then it gives that it gives your plan a little bit more um, street cred um, and also uh, gives your consumers a, a level of that you're trying to mitigate risk, not completely eliminate it, but mitigate it. Um, and also gives you a little confidence as well. So that's something, again, if you don't have the resources to, to, to do this um, more in depth, that's something you do. And then finally, there was a question from someone about the, um, the drive-in idea. Yeah, um, we're, we're starting with, so we have all our parking structures. So uh, one of the staff came up with this great idea to do this drive-in live event um, on the roof of our parking deck. Uh, it looks like that's actually going to work. So we're starting with movies because it's just easy and we have a, um, a sponsor who can help us with the uh, video wall and whatnot. But if it is successful and we're able to, um, you know, have a, a pretty decent um, response in the first month, we are looking to expand it to live performances. Similar to what's being described here by some of the folks of, you know, a socially distanced music performance where we would have a stage, um, you know, on the roof, on the deck, uh, with uh, live music and people would would come to the concert um, you know just like they would a drive-in film you're probably you probably have started to see too it just came out today I think it's um, I can't remember what baseball stadium is doing a drive-in concert series starting within the next couple weeks or so uh, but it's like a, a major stadium I want to say it's in Texas I can't remember uh, is doing like big big arena tour type concerts as a drive-in in on the ballpark field. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this, particularly people who have access to that. So um, that's what I got. I think I got everything else. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. And thank you, Jamie Gilmore for, for posting the analytics survey. That's perfect. So it does look like it's open to, to anybody. It is expensive. I will say that. So um, you know, if resources are kind of um, a drag for you right now, there, I think I really do believe there's a way to kind of duct tape, scotch tape, um, a similar type of project together that would give you the information that you need. Kendra, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Uh, take care, everybody. And um, uh, to the panelists, I learned a lot from you today, too. Thanks for all your great info. Thanks, Mike, for putting this together. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks again. Okay, bye-bye. So why don't we do just a few more questions here. Um, Jenna Bell asked, are any of you deciding not to reopen your halls with social distancing? In other words, do, you, do any of you feel it isn't worth it to explore reduced attendance? It sounded like Kendra was the, the main one who felt that way because of Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, but it partially in its answer to that question, but I saw a similar question on here to the opposite effect. Uh, we are in Texas. Texas opened technically two weeks ago. Um, and so while we are still very much observing county and city restriction guidelines, which encourage us not to leave our homes still, um, the DSO is, as an organization, we are very optimistic about being able to have some kind of concert activity this summer. Um, but then again, that is saying, I mean, extremely socially distanced, very low capacities and, um, you know, restructured concerts uh, that provide for the utmost safety of our musicians. So, you know, chamber music potentially instead of full orchestral programs. Um, 
and uh, you know, doing things like we're putting in our stage extension permanently for the well for the foreseeable future to give ourselves more um, space on stage. We're killing the first two seats of rows um, to you know maximize distance between patrons and musicians. Um, you know, we're looking at masks uh, and branded masks being a part of the the experience. And so I think um, you know taking into account everyone thing that everyone's talking about, you know, hospital grade cleaning, plus very visible cleaning during the concert experience. Um, all of that taking into account with the hopes of and the optimism of, of being able to have some kind of new concert normal this summer. Thank you. Uh, Tanya Gertz asked the question, she'd like to share this with her staff where you have available later. So we are gonna try and make this, this um, webcast available later and feel free to, to share it. There's been a few questions about that. Um, okay, why don't we do a, a few more? Um, there's been a couple of questions. I'm gonna kind of tie it all together here, but basically relating to the relationship between presenters and the tech industry. So Lauren Pratt asks, is there, move, is there a move among venues and presenters to pressure Spotify or other live streaming tech companies or other tech companies to develop a fund for artists and their content development, which I think is actually a really interesting question. It's not something we've really addressed on the call. Is, does anybody want to think about that or, or kind of address that? You know, I think at the end of the day, it's sort of a question of what is the relationship really between a company like Spotify and the world of fine arts? And um, I've seen, like today, I saw Spotify announced uh, several dozen resources for artists. Um, but personally, I haven't seen, other than concert listings on Spotify, I haven't seen much other kind of sort of cross connection there. Has anybody seen anything like that? Yeah, I think it's a good question though. Um, I mean, I'll just bring up um, yeah. related to that. Uh, there is a movement um, from several musicians um, called the, the Musicians Workers Alliance. Uh, and they're basically asking for um, restructuring the system and, and, and better, uh, better uh, compensation uh, royalties from uh, streaming. Because uh, you know, if, if you look at it, and we're all aware of this, for the last couple decades, um, the streaming companies have decimated you know, essentially what artists uh, are receiving. So, you know, we're now in a situation where everyone's reliant on mostly on touring. Now that touring's not happening, we all have to pivot and think creatively about how to get artists compensated. You know, it would be uh, an, an ideal time to somehow organize, you know, whether it's supporting uh, that alliance or some other way. And, and, you know, I know it's, it's, it's high hopes, but, but to, um, you know, uh, correct the, uh, the, the, the current system because musicians do deserve to get paid more than they currently are from, from the streaming services. Yeah, somebody mentioned in the chat that Spotify has added a fundraising feature that artists can add to their profiles. So I suppose that's better than nothing. Um, why don't we do just one more question here? This is a really good question actually. So Paul Carr is asking, for those of you who are considering live performance with attendees, have you explored the distance required from the stage when you have horns? <laughs> um, it's something I mean, there's no question I, I that, that, that's a vocalist too. 
I mean, we all know that about, you know, th that there are certain disciplines that are, are that where contagions are released more like choirs, wind instruments, and this has all been documented. So it is a serious problem for us presenters who are doing orchestral or choral work. Um, no doubt about that. I just also, I, I wanted to get back for one second too on the response that Shlomo gave, which I thought was excellent with the with the Zoom fatigue and web content. And just encourage, I think that the, the source of that comment um, or the question may have come out of um, much of the content that exists, which is traditional stage concert or live, live and taped concerts uh, footage and repurposed for video or Zoom or live uh, stream or a stream. Um, but imagine that, um, imagine a stream, um, that took you behind the scenes on, in the art making process, uh, in multidisciplinary work, uh, take audience members from your community into the, into the process of creating a piece, something that, um, the majority of audiences have never seen before. So just thinking way outside of the box of, um, repurposing stage content for streaming and actually create streaming with uh in, in actually in a, a completely um innovative uh medium that's a really excellent point have you guys explored any of that mike or is it that's what that's what we're talking about with this with uh sort of pooling resources from let's say five uh five uh partner organizations together identifying artists that we could um resource in that in that capacity and um you know artists that you know may may already have demonstrated um you know a, a comfort um and expertise in in collaborative online work uh uh so i i just i just think that there's so much value in you're not only connecting audiences to work but then you're also um uh, you're, you're where we're taking our resources and giving them to artists, which is so needed. Yeah. And Mike, I just want to add that I think what Mark you're saying is that's a really good way for anybody anywhere to work with local and regional artists as much as anything. Um, we've talked about finding ways to showcase if if there's a if it comes to the fact for a who knows how number of month how many months later or longer travel is going to be an issue. We have so many, Bryce, you mentioned it in New York, we have every area has qualified artists. Um, and what you're talking about, Mark, is a really good way to partner with local people and give them the showcase that they might not get otherwise. Or, or uh, Tom, t t take regional artists and then pair them with, with artists who are touring nationally and internationally and create, really be um, a stimulus for, for you know, unique collaboration. Okay, guys, well, I just want to offer just one more opportunity to the panelists here. Is there anything um, individually you guys wanted to address that you might have seen in the chat that I didn't, that I might have accidentally overlooked or any points just to follow up? Um, you know, now's the time, feel free to chime in. And um, if not, then I want to sincerely thank you guys again. I want to thank all the attendees for your time today. There's been a lot of great links that have been shared, a lot of great questions posed, a lot of great resources. So we're gonna, I'll compile everything from all that and we'll, um, we'll figure out a way to send it out to everybody. So thanks again, guys, really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.
Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you, Absolutely. Mike. Bye. Bye. Thank you.